Snippet, the short podcast platform. This is Check Your Privilege, the podcast. Let's welcome anti-racism guide, mental health activist, and founder of the Check Your Privilege movement, your host, Maisha T. Hill. Welcome to Check Your Privilege, the podcast. I'm your guide on this journey, Maisha T. Hill, and I'm grateful to be in community with you. Today's podcast, we're going to dig a little deep on Women's History Month and the importance of us making space for, as my friend Kina Reed would say, the global majority of women to take up space in the living history of the movement. Now, global majority would be women, trans women, female identified or non-binary persons who hold an identity of black, brown, indigenous, Southeast Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, or marginalized person of color. Let me be clear that I'm not speaking for women because that's not my job. We as women, trans women, non-binary folk, or female identified persons are not a monolith. And it's more powerful to speak with women than to speak for women. Now, I'm not the expert at women's history, but what I do know is that history shows us time and time again who gets left out, who gets the short end of the stick. In history, learning from the past is our invitation to shift our now, our next now moment. So today we're going to unpack this episode into three bite-sized segments. In the first segment, we'll learn about how Women's History Month came into being. Segment two, we'll discuss the origin of inequalities in the women's right movement. Segment three, we get to work together and do a little reimagining, envisioning how Black, Brown, Indigenous, Southeast Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander persons of color including women, trans women, and non-binary folk, need to continue to be in the center of the living history of all women's rights, people rights, human rights movements. Segment one, the birth of Women's History Month in the United States. Women's History Month is a month to reflect the often overlooked contributions of women. In fact, it started in the United States as a week-long celebration of women's contribution to culture and history, and it was organized by a school district in Sonoma, California in 1978. At this moment, students participated in what was known as a Real Woman Essay, and there was a parade that was held in Santa Rosa. About two years later, President Jimmy Carter issued a presidential proclamation declaring the week of March 8th as National Women's History Week. A year later, the U.S. Congress passed a resolution establishing a national celebration. And in 1887, the National Women's History Project, now known as the National Women's History Alliance, successfully petitioned Congress to expand the event for an entire month. Now, what's so cool for me is that I just actually learned that there was a National Women's History Alliance 
And the mission of the National Women's History Alliance is that they are a leader in promoting women's history and are committed to the goals of education, empowerment, equality, and inclusion. And another fascinating tip that I learned just last year, actually, in 2021, was that every Women's History Month has a theme. And this year's theme that has been curated by the National Women's History Alliance is women providing healing and promoting hope. I find this theme for women during Women's History Month to be meaningful for me as this is the year that my book comes out, Heal Your Way Forward. And I see that book as a guidepost, as a compass, as a woman providing healing and promoting hope. But we'll talk about Heal Your Way Forward in another podcast. Segment two, the origins of racial inequality and women's history movements. Now, if you listen to my former podcast, Co-Conspired Conversations, you've heard conversations with myself, Letty Gore, Louisa Duran, over the last two years, really talk about the origin of racial inequality and women's history movements. I mean, for my friends and I, and my sisters, I should say, this conversation started about two years ago when we all saw a said influencer take Maya Angelou's quote, Dr. Maya Angelou's quote, and lead with it as if it were her own. From that moment, we actually had a whole program around, right, the history of white women taking up space in the movement, essentially. And so part of that conversation was the conversation on the suffragist movement. Again, bringing up these old school textbooks, uh, the Hutton Liffin textbooks that talked about women's rights as if it was for all women and all women were created equal. And it was led by amazing white women, Elizabeth Stanton being the main character in the story. And in my history book, it never truly gave reference to black women in the movement. You know, because black women, we were leaders in the movement, but we were left behind in the movement. And history will continue to show us, no pun intended, Letty, that black women stayed behind. And now in this new fourth, fifth wave feminist revolution that we're living in today, we're taking power back into our own hands. So the women's suffrage movement did fight for women's rights but women of color were left behind. A famous black woman suffragist was Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. She spent her whole life advocating for abolitionism and women's rights. And during the National Women's Rights Convention in 1866, she urged the suffragists to include black women in their fight. Another amazing black woman abolitionist and suffragist leader was Ida B. Wells. What's so fascinating is Ida B. Wells was in this same fight with the women suffragists. And when they went to Washington, D.C. to protest, Ida B. Wells was told that she had to stand in the back of the line, that the leadership was not making space for her to walk in the front as they protested for women's rights and women's voting rights. So 
So oftentimes, you know, you have these names of Stanton, Mott, and other white activists are always giving credit for a movement that was pushed from the behind, that was advocated for by black women and other women of color. And you know what's also interesting? While doing research for this podcast, I also learned that the idea for women's political equality was not new in 1848. That these women, the white women in the movement, co-opted the work of equality from indigenous women. So Stephanie Sellers, who is a Native American studies scholar and English professor at Gettysburg College, had a really great conversation with Vox. And what she said was that these women were deeply influenced by indigenous nations like the Ande Nutsani, sometimes called the Iroquois Confederacy, and the Cherokee, where women had long served as leader. And Stanton and other suffragists lived near and were in contact with indigenous communities in upstate New York. And what they noticed is that they saw how these women in their daily lives were running their own lives and their families in a matriarchal governing structure and running their nations as judges and government leaders. That is the untold part of history that we don't know, is that while we had suffrages that were white and were fighting for women's rights, they were inspired by indigenous women of color. And not only were they inspired, they were supported by black women and Latina women and other women during this women's rights movement. So as the suffragists continued their fight and continued to leave black and brown women from standing in the front, on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified and it stated, that it was the right of citizens of the United States to vote and they shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any other state on the account of sex. But, and a big but, our black, indigenous, Latinx, and other women of color were left out because it did not explicitly protect their voting rights on the basis of race. The Voting Rights Act, though, of 1965 continued to dismantle barriers for black women. Native American women were actually also excluded from voting before the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, and there were still barriers for native indigenous folk to vote in the 1940s and 50s. That's when restrictions were lifted for Native Americans and Asian Americans. So historically, we see that racial inequality and equity was non-existent in the women's suffrage movement. And this is a movement that gave the foundation for women's history movements. Segment three, reimagining women's history. So where do we go from here? How can we center women's history from the lens of the global majority? You know, language matters, and my friend and fellow consultant and sister, Kina Reed, always reminds me, Maisha, language matters. Language matters. We have to stop saying we're, margin- we're the minority. We're actually the global majority. 
And when we identify global majority, it's that black, brown, indigenous, Southeast Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, person of color. And so how do we change the perspective of women's history daily, the living history, and the monthly celebrations to center the experiences of the global majority? I got a few ideas and what I would love for this episode, if you, if you all would send emails and help me reimagining, but the first thing that comes to mind when I reimagine how do we center the global majority of women in this work, it's it starts with white and white passing folk to take a step back and let the global majority lead from the front lines. Because historically, our voices have been silenced. Our voices were silenced during the suffragist movement. Our voices were silent in the feminist movement. We fought for our voices. And then we coined our own work as black women, shout out to Alice Walker, the womanist movement. And we made our own space where we stepped into our humanity. And now in 2020, you have high-end millennials like myself and other black women and women of the global majority, trans women included, non-binary folk included, allowing us to take and step into our power and lead. And I think there is a unspoken, unconscious fear that white and white passing folk have of stepping back. You know, my friend Louisa Duran talks often about how whiteness cannot see outside of itself, outside of its own perceptions. And this is where I would agree. Oftentimes when you inform or educate someone to take a step back, that first reactionary response is, is why? And a person moves into shame or victimhood like they're not good enough. And this conversation is not about you as a white or white passing person not being good enough. It's about taking a step back because history has shown that when we as women, trans women, non-binary folk of the global majority step up and take up space, it causes a level of discomfort that makes you feel inferior, abnormal, and insecure. And so if we are going to make space for women like myself to step up, we also need white and white passing folks to be right there behind us, pushing our movements forward, to stop silencing our voices, to ask black and brown and indigenous and Southeast Asian and Asian American Pacific Islander folk what we need to develop programs to support our work on a global scale, to have an understanding of the barriers that we face as women, trans women included, and non-binary folk of the global majority, what we need to be leaders in space. We have to reimagine a world through creativity, a world that sees the beauty and brilliance of women of the global majority. And as I think about the theme of this year's Women's History Month, I want us to reflect on this. Who or what BIPOC woman, trans woman, or non-biler healer can we celebrate and elevate during this Women's History Month? Take a few minutes and reflect on it and think about it. What woman trans woman, 
and non-binary person of the global majority that we may know as a healer, how can we celebrate and elevate their work during Women's History Month and throughout the living history of our daily lives? Thanks for hanging out with me. I'm Maisha T. Hill. And until we talk again, friends, keep living into your work. Peace. Thank you.